Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 186 and this episode is with high performance and rehab coach and the author of Strength Training for Soccer, Bram Swinnon. Bram came on and we discussed velocity-based training. We talked about how he utilises it, what are the benefits. We also spoke about how, how he'd adapt it working with youth players exercise selection um, this is probably the podcast that we went into the most detail on velocity-based training we then talked about some external and internal feedback for players and we also discussed dual task training as well and Bram went into um, the definition of dual task training and how he applies it as well and gave some great examples from um, his programming too so loads of great stuff in this one from Bram I do mention as well though in the podcast it can be quite hard sometimes to sort of describe some of the things that you're talking about but go and check it out because he puts loads of stuff out over on his LinkedIn and his Instagram and his social channels so go and give him a follow maybe even check out some of the videos even before you listen to the podcast and then you'll have a bit of a better idea on some of the stuff he's talking about so his Instagram is his name so Bram B-R-A-M even underscore Swinnon S-W-I-N-N-E-N and then his LinkedIn if you just search for his name Bram Swinnon you'll be able to find him so go and check that out Now, I was hoping this week I would be able to bring you an announcement of a new networking event. That hasn't been able to happen, but we are close with a few events coming and we've got some really exciting ones coming for the rest of the year as well. So make sure you keep your eyes and ears peeled um, because we will hopefully be announcing something over the next few days. And just on that as well, if you are interested in hosting an event, or even speaking at one of the events, make sure to get in touch. You can drop us a message on our Instagram or our Twitter at FootballFitFed or drop us an email, mail at FootballFitFed.com. It'd be great to hear from you. We've got some great events lined up for the rest of the year, but I'm always keen to speak to people if they are looking to host events like ours. So just before we jump into the episode with Bram, big thank you to our sponsors, Black Box Fitness, Black Box are the world's best training equipment, accessory and apparel brand. Black Box believes that training isn't just a checkbox on your to-do list. Training is a lifestyle, continually seeking your highest performance in the gym, on the pitch, at home and in everyday life. To perform at your best, you need the best and Black Box has you covered. So go and check them out on social media at BLK Box Fitness. And a huge thank you to Rezl. Rezl is the world's leading cognitive training platform for sport. By using VR technology, Rezl and Player22 can create game-style scenarios and recreate pressure to help you prepare for the real thing. And I did actually speak to Bram about VR after the podcast. We should have recorded the conversation. Um, He's a big fan of it. And I know Rezl are doing some great work that ties into some of the stuff that Bram talks about on the podcast as well. So make sure you listen out for that. And then finally, big, big thank you to our newest sponsor, Hytro. Have you tried Hytro? The wearable blood flow restriction solution is unlocking better recovery in players. While many may have used BFR for rehab, Hytro are demonstrating the huge impact BFR can have on recovery and performance when used after competition or training. Through their innovative design, BFR straps are integrated into shorts, delivering BFR to groups of players safely and more conveniently than ever before. And they also, they've not mentioned this in that, but they look 
cool as well. The kit is absolutely quality. Go and check them out. Hytro.com, H-Y-T-R-O.com, or you can email Warren at Hytro.com. Warren Bradley has been on the podcast previously as well, so go and check out Hytro. Let's get into it now. Episode 186 with high performance and rehab coach and author of Strength Training for Soccer, Bram Swinnon. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 186, and I'm delighted to welcome onto the podcast today, Bram Swinnon. Bram, how are you? Fine, thank you. Uh, thank you for welcoming me on your podcast, inviting me. No problem at all. It's, uh, we've, we just had a quick chat there about some of the topics we're going to cover, and I think the listeners are going to enjoy it. Um, and I know you're a busy, busy man as well. So I appreciate you freeing up some time to come on. You always got time. Eh? Perfect. Perfect. Well, Ram, I've just mentioned your name. I've not mentioned your role or anything that you do. And I'm sure there's some people that know already. But do you want to start us off with that? Do you want to give us a little bit of a breakdown on your career, your background, um, and then what you currently do as well? Um, yeah, I started, I did the master's in physical education. After I did the master in uh, physical therapy. At that moment, I was not really thinking about going into rehab, but I just wanted to know everything about training and especially the, the human body. Uh, from there, I went in uh, basketball, first in Belgium, then into the national team. And from there, um, my international career uh, kick-started and I worked in uh, three different teams, in, uh, one in Moscow, uh, one in Poland, one in Spain, like all top eight teams, EuroLeague teams. Uh, and because I had the experience working in Moscow, I, I changed the football to Anji, uh, the team of Gus Hiddink, um, um, and, and many famous players at that moment. And that's, that's about 10 years ago, and that's the way I rolled into football. Um, that was a lot of traveling, uh, because every game was an away game. Uh, we trained in Moscow, but we played in Dagestan. So many flights. Um, I wanted to settle down a little bit more after that. I was tired a little bit of the, of the traveling, too much traveling. And I started uh, a business uh, together with Diva Marskog, the famous physiotherapist, moved to Cure Performance in Antwerp. And after three years, uh, I got contacted by Genk. Um, and since then, I combine, um, I'm a performance coach at Genk, and I combine it with my own practice and my own business. Brilliant. So that, that made me it. And also an author. Yes, <laughs> um, uh, I, I forgot about. Thank you for reminding me. But uh, that was after, like during the yeah, you had a lot of flights with Angie, a lot of hotels. Um, there, I started to write my book, and then uh, also half a year after that, uh, I only uh, wrote. So I took six months of time to really write it, um, and uh, it's been an international success and I'm also yeah just um, really proud yeah to be an author of a, of a book uh, I wanted really to put my ideas into yeah and in, into a book and yeah it's been a very it's been a big success so far 
Brilliant. Well, I know we're going to try and cover a lot in this podcast today, but I'd also encourage people to go and get that because I'm sure there's going to be more detail than what we can get through in an hour's podcast in the book. So, um, yeah, people can go and check that out. Um, I wanted to start this podcast sort of backwards. We normally do a quick fire round at the end of the podcast, but I've brought it forward just to find out a little bit more about yourself and then we can dive into your philosophies and methodologies a little bit more. Um, so one of the questions I normally ask is who are some of the biggest influences on your career? Um, yeah, otherwise it was, uh, I remember like uh, I discovered the books of Fleck and Kramer and Zazjorski. That was in my first, I must, my third year in my master's of physical education. Uh, since then I studied more those books than the topics uh, in my curriculum. Uh, I started training uh, some university athletes uh, that were high-level athletes, but still at, at university, um, just for free because of because of the passion, um, and that was also triggered by those books. Um, after straight out of college, um, I read an article about a first division basketball team, and um, it was a Croatian head coach, and he said, "Yeah." Um, the team has no budget for a physical trainer or for a performance coach and a physical therapist. I have to choose, so we have to take a physical therapist. So I applied right away. And uh, the Tony Souverains was a team director and also the coach of the national team. Um, I had to sit down with him quite intensive for an hour about topics like, like periodization, how I would um, implement everything on a practical. And after that hour, uh, yeah, they gave me the job, and that's that's the way it started. Otherwise, yeah, I read a lot of different stuff. Uh, I was for working for five years as a performance coach in Russia, and the Soviet uh, methodology. Yeah, it's it's a methodology that is um, it's based on uh, research with the top athletes. So, for example, Prilipine, he studied training plans of only yeah, uh, the top three. So bronze, silver or gold medalist in the Olympics, the world championships and European championships. And yeah, so some of the Soviets um, like uh, Prilipine, Bondarchuk, um, Verkhoshansky. So they definitely influenced my, my vision on, on training. And yeah, I'll, I would say any good researcher that really has um, researched but applied to practice. Um, uh, there's so many. Uh, I'll also like, for example, from uh, rugby, I like uh, the books from Paul Gambo, um, many researchers on velocity-based training. A lot of them are Spanish that work with the uh, football team of Sevilla. Um, Rodriguez Rossell, for example, I like uh, Andy Gerkler, um as uh, as a research uh, as a researcher, but with really good practice. Uh, any anybody that has a good um, yeah that eats of both worlds, so practice and uh, research, so evidence based, but uh, more practical. And uh, there, there's so. Uh, there's so many great colleagues out, out there. You also have like a, a very interesting story of uh, Mladen Jovanovic, the way it started. Um, yeah, there's so many. There's so many guys, but 
I try to pick the brain of a lot of different people and apply it into my methods. Brilliant. Next one I normally ask is, what would you say your biggest strength is as a practitioner? Um, I really develop myself. Um, so I'm a performance coach and a physical therapist. So I'm definitely um, specialized in um, rehab, but the later stages of the rehab. So the moment the player is about to step on the pitch and uh, from there on. And yeah, from the performance part, um, I think I have a modern vision on, uh, on performance training. Brilliant. And it might tie into this a little bit, but I normally ask people how they do their learning or, or we refer to it as like CPD, whether that's courses, which I know you run, but also you personally, how do you continue to learn? Is that just through, is that through courses? Is that through conversations? What resources do you use? Like, how do you go about that? What's your approach? Um, I'm doing this now for a little bit more than 20 years on a professional level. And if, it, if I compare the last 10 years of my career with the first 10, then even the last 10, I learned more than the first 10. And I think also the higher level you get, the, uh, the better colleagues you meet. So through conversation, I changed a little bit more from reading books to going more into articles and research. Um, and of course, there are, there are so many good courses out there. So uh, once in a while, I try to pick a course as well. Brilliant. And it, it, that just shows the strength of your sort of circle or close group of peers, doesn't it, that you build over a certain amount of times that you're referring to? Because you can have conversations with yeah. some of the people that you've mentioned um, on the podcast already that have got big depths in knowledge. Um, but that does come through experience, doesn't it? And through working through a number of years in, in high sport, um, in elite sport. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, passion and experience is a powerful mix. So um, there are so many passionate people in the field, also with a lot of experience or a lot of enthusiasm um, and talking to them and what they're reading and what they're, how they're developing. It's always interesting. Yeah, brilliant. You touched on it before. We wanted to get into some specifics now. Velocity-based training. It's something that I know you use a lot and I know you've got a, a real good amount of experience in using it as well. So I want to, first of all, it, maybe we could give a little bit of a broad definition on what it is, just in case there's anyone listening that doesn't know. And then maybe some of the applied work that you do in terms of how it fits into your programming. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, velocity-based training, basically it means that you don't prescribe repetitions but instead you say, for example, when the speed drops with 10% within a set, then you stop, you quit the set. And that's the first set. Uh, it doesn't have to be the first repetition because uh, more technical movements, mostly like the second or the third rep, they're with the highest velocity. But based on the highest velocity, if you have a certain drop, then you stop the set, no prescription of repetitions. 
And you can apply like velocity-based 5%, you can apply 10%, 20%. And the good thing about velocity-based training is that you have a real good grasp on uh, neuromuscular fatigue. And you, have, you, you know more exact when you can expect uh, your peak or your, uh, uh, how you say it, like uh, your super compensation. Mm. So, for example, if you apply like a velocity loss of 10%, then uh, after five hours, you have your super compensation. There's no more neuromuscular fatigue. And when you work with a repetition-based approach, yeah, it's more guesswork. So also the good thing, if you work with a group with velocity-based training, there's automatically more individualization because velocity loss 10%, if I prescribe it to a young athlete, he will probably do less repetitions than a trained athlete who has experience with strength training or performance training. So he will probably be able to do a little bit more when you prescribe repetitions for the younger athletes, yeah, that load neuromuscularly will be heavier than for the experienced athlete. Um, also a good thing, uh, like, um, yeah, the schedule, the roster of almost all teams in Europe are really congested. So it's difficult to do a lot of testing for one repetition maximum. But velocity-based training, also based on the speed, it's really easy to make an estimate of your maximum and uh, training becomes also a testing. Yeah, that was something I was going to actually mention because you've already said you get more feedback out of using this rather than just yeah. sort of traditional strength training, don't you? Because it's a little bit more subjective. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So, sorry. No go, no, go on. Sorry. Yeah. It's also, yeah, it's a, little, it's a little bit difficult to explain without graphs but you also have a very good, if you plot it into a graph, it's very easy to make an analysis of the player, what he needs, if he needs more like work at the velocity uh, end of the curve or at the force end of the curve. Um, it's more easy to adapt your periodization in function of uh, what the player needs and the period of the, of the year. So it has so many advantages and data gathering that you gather a lot of a massive amount of data uh, is one of the big advantages. Yeah, and then just picking out of that data as well, because obviously you, you're constantly monitoring in that way as well, aren't you? You're not having to set aside a session where you're going to do a, a monitoring session or a screening session, or maybe you'll do that as well. But this is constantly giving you feedback, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, absolutely. And there's a lot of fluctuations you've just mentioned a busy period of a season there's a lot of things that come into play with uh, neuromuscular fatigue and fixture pileups and all the rest of it so it's giving you direct feedback in an instant isn't it absolutely because uh, it doesn't matter with what what percentage you work um, but you always have an idea of the speed you can estimate the one repetition maximum and based on that on, with every training, you can see if there's progress or not. Also, if there's some fatigue, if you see for two or three ses sessions in a row that there's no progress, but there's a little bit of decrease in the performance, then you know 
that you have to adapt some things that are that, that there's neuromuscular fatigue and it's really easy to yeah um you're monitoring at the same time for neuromuscular fatigue and efficiency so it's easy to adapt and then what about intent or intensity of a movement as well because because players are getting that instant feedback and like you've mentioned it isn't a prescribed rep um, amount like we would with traditional sort of strength training we're more looking at the speed and the velocity um, produced do you do you feel like there's a massive step up in the intent that players put into certain movements compared to more traditional like strength training uh, since I applied I definitely see more progress. It's also because at the same time you have what they call augmented feedback. So uh, on every rep, the player can see if it's if it's a quality rep or it's less quality. That also in the brain triggers an area that's uh, responsible for the action perception coupling. It's like a fancy word, but it means that the athlete he knows right away this is a this is a this is a good rep. And he will change his movement more to the ideal, the, the good reps, and he will know which rep is not good. And so he will set his movement more to quality. So that's an important one, an augmented feedback uh, immediately within a session, but also in the long term has proven to help uh, players progress more than without that feedback. Um, I think also what's an important one it's from research, it's really clear um, which percentages of velocity loss you, you choose based on the goal of the training. If I want to improve sprint performance, then I'm best off with 5%. So if I plan a speed strength session, more uh, focused on explosivity, yeah, then I work more with 5 to 10%. If I want to improve like counter-movement jump, then I'm better off with 5 to 20% of velocity loss. If I want to trigger the most, if I want most of hypertrophy for my fast switch fibers, then I'm better off around 20%. Strength endurance, anywhere between 10 and 30%. So a lot. Uh, also, that's probably the main advantage of velocity loss velocity, uh, velocity-based training. Is that with the Holton curve, we are doing, we are prescribing way too many repetitions. Because if you apply, for example, uh, velocity loss of 10%, if you compare that with velocity loss 30%, you do half or 40% of the repetitions. And if you apply the Holton curve, then in a set, you have 60 to 70% of velocity loss based on the exercise. So that's enormous, that's huge. So with a lot less repetitions, you have a lot more uh, gains, a lot more improvement. And what's also important, you have the post-activation potentiation effect when you, do, you apply complex training or you do the session, the performance session right before you step on the field. And that effect is a lot bigger, which, which is logical with velocity-based training, for example, velocity-based training, velocity loss 10% than when you apply the Holton curve because there's too much fatigue. The catabolic response of those training sessions is way too big. And um, 
for example, if you uh, like the velocity loss 10% or velocity loss 30%, they have the same anabolic response. So insulin growth factor one is triggered at the same way. And there are studies before they started with velocity loss training. If you have 70% of your maximum, um, if you do three sets of six repetitions with 70%, or you do three sets of 12 repetitions, then the anabolic response in those studies was the same. But the catabolic response was a lot bigger with three times 12. Mm. With three times six, you have uh, super compensation starting after five or six hours. And with the other three times 12, that's, and that's only one exercise, three sets. So in spring training, you plan more. You don't, you're still in fatigue after 48 hours. And in strength training, yeah, it's never isolated. You always have to consider it with the load, uh, the mechanical load on the pitch. So uh, it's never ideal to do a strength training and still have no full recuperation within 48 hours. Yeah, I, and touching on those rep um, or the sort of traditional way we've approached rep schemes in football. I don't know whether it's just that we've pulled it more from the like the bodybuilding world, is it? Doing these these high high rep um, sets without maybe the understanding of what you've just touched on like, and actually understanding what we're trying to train for. Because you see it traditionally a lot of the time, don't you, where players are doing 10, 12, 20 yeah. repetitions on some exercise and not really getting the, des the desired yes. effect of what they're training for. And, and that comes down to that understanding, doesn't it? And yeah, the biggest disadvantage of repetition-based training is that you see, for example, too many, uh, a lot of repetitions, they cause a lot of neuromuscular fatigue. Uh, really slow uh, movement speed cause a, causes a lot of neuromuscular fatigue. And also slow movement speed, yeah, it has nothing to do with the explosive contractions and the short contact times that we see in football. It's an explosive sport. Yeah. We don't have to lift extremely heavy to gain strength. Even if you see like uh, Bondarchuk, who's like really one of the experts in powerlifting, mostly he lifts between 70 and 80% of maximum to make, to, to increase his athletes one repetition maximum. So um, we don't need, yeah, sometimes you can do a set of 90%, but that doesn't have to be often. And especially when you play two times a week and you have a player that plays most of the games, yeah, then you don't want to go there. Yeah. And that's when that direct feedback or instant feedback becomes even more yeah. applicable, isn't it? Because you can see how fatigued that player is. And, and also, I think the most important thing, if you have like maximum sprinting speed or you have even like a football kick, the velocity... The movement velocity is so high, it's really at the speed end, speed end of the force velocity curve. And it has nothing to do with, with the part, with the, the pure force part of the curve. So if you're doing really lifts to failure or close to failure, yeah, those movement speeds are really low. You're at 0 0.3 meters a second row in, in football, you're a lot higher. So they don't have, they have no influence. One has no influence on the other, especially in top athletes. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And for for you in programming, Bram, as well, we, you've touched on the force velocity curve and sort of how um, how that can influence like what you're doing and what you're programming. But when you've got a group in as well, does that make it a lot easier for you to program for different individuals within the team setting as well? Uh, it is it is uh, it is easier because you already have that individualization. And it's also really, it's easy to, to apply. Uh, it's easy, for example, that still players, they have more or less the same training, but they have a different velocity loss prescribed. So some can have, for example, um, com compare two athletes. One, he made progress and he made progress on the whole force velocity curve. So from the force end to the velocity end. And we're going more towards the end of the season in Belgium we have the playoffs with, with that player I know he has a good base a good string base I can work more at the velocity end of the curve so I can focus more on the 5% 5 to 10% velocity loss if I have a player and he made, you, uh, he made good gains at the speed end of the curve but not really progress at the force end yeah, with him I will mix in a little bit more uh, also, like maybe velocity lost 20%, depending on, yeah, on the planning and periodization, of course. I'm not going to do two days before the game, I'm not going to plan in 20% velocity loss. No. There I would even more with 5 or 10%. But if it's four days before the game, with that player, I will go a little bit more to 20% velocity loss. And the other player, I will keep him at 5 or a maximum 10. But not. And that could be on the same exercises. That could be on the same exercises. Which of course, the it... exercises can also differ, but it can be the same exercise. But the focus of the training is different. And the good thing, you don't have to explain it to each player. Yeah. Like they just check in. So we work with a smart coach on, on Kaiser. So you, they check in. They know what weight they have to select. Uh, they perform the exercise, and as long as the uh, as the smart coach he gives the augmented feedback of good or high, they continue. Low, they stop. That's the only thing they have to know. You don't have to explain them about okay, you're gonna do that, that many reps there, that many reps there. You just check in, and you do. You continue high speed, high quality at each repetition. The moment it says low, you stop. Brilliant. I do have to say, um, with explosive work, yeah, for example, a jump squat, um, alternating step-up jumps, with those exercises, I prescribe a maximum number of repetitions, just in case. Because less experienced athletes, because of movement adaptation, because the eccentric phase becomes slower. So because of that compensation, they can stay sometimes a long time in that they maintain a good average speed. So peak power is better for explosive exercise for monitoring, but there I prescribe a maximum number of repetitions. So you do, for example, you do seven or eight max, but if the machine, if it says low at four or five, you stop. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant, great insight. I've got a very special announcement on this week's podcast. 
Our online community has got some incredible information on there from some brilliant practitioners right across the game. But this week we've uploaded a webinar and it's up there with the best. We've got Yuri Pagel, AFC Ajax Head of Strength, has presented for us plyometrics in football. Yuri goes into loads of great information from uh, his definitions of plyos, um, what, what they actually are in an applied environment, and then also, more importantly, how he programs them. And he also discusses programming in season and also off season as well. So this webinar is a must see. We've released a little preview over on our YouTube page, so you can go and check that out. But to get full access to the webinar, join the online community because you can watch the full webinar from Yuri as well as loads of other practitioners. And then when you become a full member, it's only £4.99 per month going forward as well. So go to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up there. It'll give you your free month and you can go and check out the presentation by, by Yuri, which I fully recommend. Um, and also all the other great content that's on there too. Anyone that signs up off the back of this episode, just drop us an email once you've signed up to the community at mail at footballfitfed.com and we'll send you over a free copy of one of our ebooks as well. So just put podcast in the subject line and we'll send you over a free copy of an ebook if you sign up to the online community at footballfitfed.com and click the community tab to get full access to presentations just like Yuri's and plenty more on there as well. So go and check it out. Here's part two of the podcast with Bram Swinnon. Yeah, that was one thing that I wanted to ask about as well was you touched on there maybe the differences between certain exercises. In terms of exercise selection and maybe how that differs from one exercise to another, how does that influence your programming? Is there, is there standards or set exercises that you go to? Um, I'm, I apply what I, what's called from uh, Bernstein um, in motor learning, what also touched uh, by French uh, Bosch is like repetition without repetition. So I want to have a lot of variation, not, on, not in one session, but especially throughout the sessions. So a lot of different movement uh, patterns. Uh, for example, you have a single leg squat, you have a single leg rotational squat, you have a, uh, a single uh, Bulgarian deadlift, uh, a lot of different exercises. So with, without rotation, more vertical force or like more horizontal force. Um, so I want to variate a lot of a lot there to have a more robust movement pattern. Um, but I want to mix in uh, horizontal force production. So as well from an acceleration perspective as from an agility perspective, because horizontal force production is also really important for um, my agility performance in the in in the uh, in the last and the second last step. So I mix that with vertical force production or vertical uh, stiffness. So, but I variate with, um, I, I variate a lot between sessions. So I also have, for example, my different goals. So I have like, for example, strength endurance, which is a lot of different movement patterns, a lot of rotation. 
I also try to train a lot there um, the myofascial systems. There are probably a little more repetitions. Um, then I have like a more pure strength session. There you can, I can still do, I still do, for example, squats, so double leg training. Um, and then I have like speed strength and a strength speed session. Strength speed is more based on complex training. So a strength exercise combined with, uh, with an explosive exercise or strength exercise combined with a sport-specific exercise or even like plyometric exercise combined with a sport-specific exercise or ballistic. So anything, anything works there. And the speed strength uh, session, that's really the icing on the cake. There, I stay away from, from the heavy lifting. I think I go maximum till 70% of one, one repetition maximum. But I use a lot of ballistic exercise. For example, the alternating step-up jump. So a step-up, but I ask the player like to jump out. So um, like with, with the rack of, of Kaiser, you can still do that in a safe way. There are many ways you can still do it in a safe way. Because of course, if you work ballistic, it has to be safe. So I combine their ballistics with plyometrics or ballistics with sport specific. And I definitely want to integrate like a cognitive part in that training, like the dual tasks. Yeah, and that's something I want to dive into in a little bit. But just on what you just mentioned, when you're saying sport-specific, how does that look? So if you're pairing a, um, like a plyo exercise with sport-specific, like what, how, what does that actually look like? Uh, they can, for example, um, yeah, they can be, for example, like hurdle jumps or it can be a plyometric exercises. Um, that's a little bit more into horizontal force production. So for example, you jump over a hurdle, you change direction on the left and you line up for the next hurdle, which is more on your right side. So then you have like the uh, horizontal force production and change of direction. And I combine that, for example, with a drill, with, with the lights, uh, with the reaction lights, but with a cognitive element that there's always some decision making. And then I prefer also to integrate or to have a buildup start only with the footwork. Uh, for example, I line out uh, eight lights. When it lights up red, they have to touch right, blue, left. And I'm going to build that up. So even uh, I, I'm going to introduce more colors. And with every color, I ask a different action. And also with playing the ball. So a little bit difficult to explain, but also on my social media, you have a lot of examples of those exercises. That is one thing I'd say for everyone to go and check out because you put you put out loads of great content and, and it makes it a lot of the stuff you're talking about. I know it can be hard to explain so much, but if you watch it, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? So, um, no, that's great, Bram. I, I was going to, we'll move on to the dual task training in a second because I want to ask you about that. Just on the end of that, though, I did put out on our socials for people to send some questions in. And one thing that was sent in around velocity-based training was velocity-based training for youth players. So what if someone's asking about, like, would you use it with youth players and then how you would use it with youth players, like, what would you say? Uh, I would definitely use it with youth players. Uh, I know 
A lot of the equipment is a little bit more expensive. So we use the Kaiser with the smart coach. That's, that's more expensive uh, equipment. If you don't have that equipment, you, uh, you can still use the VMAX Pro. It's also what we use, for example, when we do single leg squats. So you can put it like in the GPS vest if you do a single leg squat without weight. Or it's like a magnet that you stick on the bar. That's the only thing that, you, that requires. You stick it on the bar and you can choose, you can select, okay, you want uh, feedback on velocity loss during the set. And with every repetition, it says 4%, 9%, 11%, and then they know when to stop. And that only costs like 279 euros. Um, the software is really easy to use and really good. So anybody can use that. So even if you, uh, even with, uh, uh, you don't need a lot of equipment and fancy stuff to apply it. And there are scientific studies um, that even have shown that it's really reliable. And what about ages, Bram, in terms of like, what, what sort of age would you look to be starting something like this? Um, I start working with players here at the age of 10. But of course, in the beginning, it's more about movement experience, movement patterns. And I introduce straight away the cognitive part because the younger, the better, the more plastic the nervous system, the easier you make connections between the neurons. And when you have more experience, I enter more into the quality work. I would say with the athletes that I work, uh, that starting from 13, I, I apply it. So depending a little bit on how mature a player is, but for me, it's not the age that depends it, uh, that it does, doesn't depend on the age. It's on the progress and the way the, the athlete picks up, uh, picks up the training. It's uh, at a young age that it's fun and the movement experience is very important. And um, yeah, the intensity, uh, those qualities, those parameters, they become, once you have that base, that becomes more important. So then I would start to integrate it uh, with the players I work with. Yeah, anyone that's worked with academy players will know there's a big, there's simply the chronological age isn't the only factor, is it, on prescribing training to yeah. a player? There's a lot of other factors that go into yes. it, but I just thought I'd get your opinion on that as well. Um, Bram, let's dive into this dual task training. You mentioned it before. Um, what is it and how does that actually look in, in your programming? Um, I'm going to give you a quick example um, that, it's, uh, that people can grasp a little bit more what I want to mean. If a player, if you ask him to do a sprint, just a test, during training. So the only thing you ask him, he has to do, do like a sprint. If you compare that with him doing a sprint during a game, like his running mechanics are different. Only because of the cognitive load that you have during the game. During the game, you're looking at, at all the positions of the other players, with the player with the ball, the tactical pattern, um, so there's a lot of cognitive load. And because of the load, 
in a game, the stride length from sprinting is bigger than, than you just do it at a speed test. And um, that's um, because it's, uh, it's what the neural code, uh, uh, gain, uh, gate code, uh, they call it. Because sprinting is an automatic movement that comes from the brain at the cerebellum and at the basal ganglion. Yeah, I don't want to make it too technical, but it's just a small part that your motor cortex uh, is involved in those, uh, those movement patterns. But when you have a lot of cognitive load, also the automated movement patterns, they become more conscious. And they go to different parts of your brain. What you also see is that the endpoint variability of movement is bigger when there's a higher cognitive load. And more novice athletes, they have big problems the moment that they come in a stressful situation or they come in a situation where they have to take uh, quick decisions and complicated quick decisions, their movement uh, deteriorates a lot. And expert athletes, they don't have that. Also because the movement is engraved deeper into like deeper brain areas, uh, what they call like the reptile brain, for example. And they're also less immune to stress and less immune to fatigue. So that's all scientifically proven. And my perspective as a performance coach is that if you want to build good movement, and if you want to develop good movement, then you also need to provide cognitive load or dual tasks. I don't say that you only can give an exercise with a dual task, but a dual, like regular dual task into, into performance training is an important trigger for better movement patterns and even for higher quality of, of, of uh, higher quality of movement and better motor learning. So another I, part, what's, what's important, what we, for example, do with the goalkeepers is the day after the game, we do a lot of dual task things. Because uh, in football, you have uh, peripheral, fatigue and central neuromuscular fatigue. And almost all recuperation sessions or uh, the full recuperation session is always based more on the lateral fatigue, like peripheral fatigue. But in football, based also on the, on the, on the, on the athlete, based on the position, uh, but research, uh, according to research, is like mo uh, most part of the, of the fatigue is localized central neuromuscularly. And with a cognitive load, you improve like the, the activation of the motor cortex, which is the opposite of fatigue because there you see an inhibition of the motor cortex. So I, I'm also convinced, and we use it in that way in, in Genk, is that we use cognitive training also to help 
central neuromuscular recovery. So especially the goalkeepers after the game, because goalkeepers, yeah, throughout the whole game, they have to maintain a very high focus. And even sometimes at top teams, goalkeepers, they don't have a lot of work, but they have to catch two, three important balls that they have to catch. But they have to maintain the focus throughout the whole, throughout the whole uh, game. So I would say, yeah, dual task, uh, movement quality, very important. It helps with motor learning and you have a higher output of the motor cortex. So also um, quality in your performance session, it can only help. Yeah, it's really interesting. And again, just to go back into academy players and academy ages again, because you mentioned before about utilizing this at those early ages. So would it, would it be a case of learning a movement and having this as a continuum where once they start to improve that movement, then you could ask, add dual task training yes. in? Or would it be that you put it in quite early because then that maybe speeds up the progression of the, of the development? Um, you can separate it uh, in a way that, for example, you have an easy movement. So, for example, just play back the ball and you start with a cognitive load and always improve, uh, always make it more difficult. But you can also first, like for example, start with a movement. And let's say just um, like an explosive strength movement. For example, a, cross, a resisted crossover step for lateral agility. And when the player, like it goes both ways, you make a movement to the left and that's the resisted part, you go back and that's the overspeed part. When you go to the left, for example, you ask the player to do to count plus five and go back and count minus two. So it's five, three, it's eight, six. And you ask them, okay, you keep counting until you reach that number. So you have a control about the repetitions, but he has to, yeah. Um, and for some players, that's already too difficult. So, but even that is a co cognitive load. And um, ah, you would be surprised how quick they pick it up. So I think the key with dual task is to give a cognitive load that doesn't really deteriorate the quality of movement. If there's too much deterioration of the quality of movement, then you need, then the cognitive load is it's too difficult. Yeah, there's some players that I've worked with, Bram, that might struggle with the counting bit by itself without the actual exercise. Um, <laughs> but no, I know, I know exactly what you mean, and that and that's a great example. Um, is there something else that you can give in, in terms of an example of utilizing this? Because I think it's a really interesting area, and um, maybe just delving into some of some of other parts of your programming and how you use it as well. Um. For example, the goalkeepers in the performance session, so in the strength session, in between two exercises, a lot of times we do something cognitive with high-hand high -hand coordination. So um, that we want them really to keep high focus throughout the whole session. So for example, the strength exercise can also be without a cognitive load, just, uh, just the strength task related. And then they have like a cognitive drill and then again, like a, like a performance exercise. So any, anything is possible. Um, I think there, 
variation is key because what you want to trigger is a lot of plasticity um, of the nervous system, a lot of connections between neurons. And what's even very interesting is that even the last, uh, the latest years, the last three, four years, you have a lot of research that show that too task-oriented training and rehab with too much internal feedback is one of the big reasons of the high relapse with, for example, hamstring injuries, ACL injuries, with a lot of, you have a lot of injuries that have a really high relapse rate. And uh, more and more studies are pointing towards uh, too much task-related training instead of dual-task training and too much internal feedback. Because it's logical. Um, on a pitch, a player is not only focused or he's not focused at all on his movement. He's focused on other things. So in rehab, if you're gonna focus only on the movement, yeah, it's two different things. Because for, um, for good athletes, like expert athletes, their movement is completely automated. And what you do in rehab is you pull them back into development more from the learning phase. You have the associative phase and then you have the automatization phase. You pull them back in that continuum. So you disrupt highly efficient movements with the rehab. So, and it's, it's been shown that in rehab, dual tasks are very important to make it successfully on the pitch again. No, that is re really interesting. Really interesting how it fits into the rehab process. We, we did a podcast um, with Richard Evans, who's, who's with the Belgium national team at the moment. And he was talking about his time at Wigan Athletic and a player went for a rehab process and they got him back out onto the training pitch and he just didn't look like he yeah. was ready to be out there, essentially. And Richard stepped up and said, we need to take him back. And it's at that stage, isn't it, that's crucial because if you get a player out on back on the pitch or the training pitch, is that job done or is it still a case of are they actually ready? And because then there's that, that chance of that relapse, isn't there? It's, it's, it's good that you mention that because a lot of players, when they come from rehab, they're really well trained and also in, in today's game, in today's clubs, you have a really good interaction with the uh, with the rehab coach, the physical therapist, and uh, the fitness coach. So a lot of times there was more than enough focus on conditioning during the rehab. So it's not, it's not the conditioning that's the problem. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's the quick decision-making. If you don't touch this for several weeks, your brain is a lot more plastic than your body. So it changes quicker. Like neurons that you don't, connections between neurons that you don't use, you lose. So they step on the pitch. Their decision-making, their anticipation is not, not that good as before. Their coordination is less. Their movement efficiency is less. They get tired more quickly and they're more, more prone to re-injury. So it's a really essential part of, uh, of rehab.
And again, Bram, would that be a sort of continuum that you would start on on the basis of the rehab and then the dual task stuff will come towards the end or would it be something that you'd be trying to add in earlier on in the process? Uh, I'm rehabbing now somebody, an uh, ACL injury. Um, six months after surgery and I'm integrating um, brain training because you see there's after surgery, after injury, you have a big inhibition from the motor cortex. So you cannot fully activate the muscle. So if you only use strength training with a combination of brain training with strength training, it's more easy to regain strength during the first weeks of, uh, of rehab. And that's scientifically proven because if you see with all ACL, after ACL reconstruction, like strength level is a lot less, but also what you see is activation. There's a lot more inhibition from the motor cortex. So only correcting on the, uh, you also need to correct that inhibition and turn it into activation again. So what would that look like for an actual drill for that player? Because yeah. if, they're, if they're six months post-surgery, um, I think I've seen the player you're talking about actually on your, yeah. on your socials, but um, I see some of the strength stuff that you're doing with them, but how would that then look in terms of the dual task? Um, I would, for example, it doesn't have to be lights. It can also be just an iPad. <laughs> and I can show uh, colors, numbers. And with each color or number, is combined with a different exercise. For example, uh, number one can be like a small step up. Uh, right, number two is uh, the same movement on the on the left. Uh, green color can, for example, be like a single leg squat, but uh, uh, or a single leg Romanian deadlift. Anything that the player can do at that moment. So things that he can do or are just within reach. And then he has to think, he has to focus, he has to think. I also put everything like, uh, so that he has like to scan visually. So that's already a cognitive trigger. So that perception that he has to really scan, where are the lights? He has to look, scan the environment. And based on the signal, he has to make a movement. And it's a small cognitive uh, load, but I find it very, very effective. No, it is, it is really, really interesting how that's incorporated. And um, yeah, it, it's just fascinating how it's actually working in practice. And it, it'll be interesting to see how many people are actually utilizing that. And also, like you say, when the research, when there's more and more research coming out about this on how how many this sort of effect it has on relapses um, or, or re-injury. That's going to be really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But um, it's, you always have to look at the big picture and um, you, you can not only affect one end of the curve when there are more elements involved. So the more you combine, the more effective, the more, uh, the easier uh, it is to, to make progress. Bram, the time has absolutely flown on this podcast. I feel like <laughs> we've only been chatting about five minutes and we've, we're just short of an hour already. So I, I said at the start that the, the sort of depth that we could probably go into in this podcast is probably just skimming the surface. And I know that's probably the case. 
So for people that want more information, maybe the book, maybe the courses that you run or simply just to sort of follow your work and see what you're up to and maybe see some of this stuff in practice, where would you direct them? Where's the best places to keep up to date? Um, I think I show some of the exercises on my social media, so LinkedIn or uh, Instagram. Um, and yeah, we now in three weeks, we have uh, an international two-day football performance course. And there we have, um, it's, it's English spoken. It's fully in English. It's, uh, it's 14 hours. And there will be uh, from all over Europe, from 11 countries, um, somebody from first division. So, and also one Brazilian, uh, one Brazilian trainer. So it's really international and there I would go really in, in depth. And especially about planning, periodization, my mythology, yeah, you can also find it in my book. Brilliant. And there's more courses to come as well after that? Um, everything till now is uh, fully booked. Uh, the last course uh, I was sold out in less than 10 minutes, 25 spots. But this has been a huge success. We're going to evaluate after the, after the international course and then we will see. But it has been a big success, so we probably continue with, uh, with more courses. So I would say stay tuned. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> well, Bram, keep up the amazing work. I've been following what, you, what you've got going on and it's great to chat with you today. I feel like there's been some great um, discussions there. So thank you very much for your time. Likewise, it was, uh, was a big pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, mate. Okay. Thank you. See you. Thank you for listening to episode 186. I hope you enjoyed that conversation just as much as I did. Bram was brilliant and it was great to have him on the podcast. So Bram, thank you very much for coming on. Go and check him out over on Twitter at INT underscore performance. His Instagram is his name, Bram underscore Swinham. And go and search for him on LinkedIn as well, Bram Swinham. And also in the show notes, I've posted the link to some of the courses that he was talking about as well. So go and check that out too. Takeaways, as I always discuss on this one, I think one of the first things was when working in a busy schedule, we know now that a lot of our training becomes testing or monitoring. It's not about just setting up monitoring sessions and testing sessions it's a constant thing that runs right the way through the year and velocity-based training allows you to do that session session to session even set to set you're constantly monitoring players um on the velocities that they're they're producing so it's a really good way and a quick effective way of seeing where your players are at and, and managing and adapting training quickly and effectively across a squad of players as well he also spoke about doing too many reps like I think I said in the podcast that I think this has maybe come from the bodybuilding world possibly that we get caught up in that we've got to do three sets of 10 or even more sometimes and we're not necessarily keeping in mind what we're actually doing that that exercise for and whether we're trying to develop strength or power or whatever it is we're, we're falling into the trap of getting away from what we're trying to train from so again not not sounding like I'm trying to push it too much, but it's another positive of velocity-based training in that it gives you that that automatic feedback um, and you can adjust training accordingly as well. And also just on that, Bram gave some great information about if you don't have the budget 
um, for certain bits of kit, then there are, there are others out there and, and ways of, of getting around that too, which can make it really accessible to your group of players, regardless who you're working with. And then just finally on the dual task training, the importance of the cognitive side, which we've touched on quite a few times in the podcast, even thinking back to the episode with Fraser Finlay, where he spoke about this. Um, and obviously with Rezl being a, a sponsor of the podcast, I've, I've seen a lot of the work that they're doing as well. And this is a big, big um, factor in training and also the rehab process. And it was really interesting when Bram talks about, especially towards the end stage rehab, having this dual task in mind where players not only have to complete the physical side, um, but they also have to then relate it to something cognitive, which obviously is going to happen then out on the pitch. So could that be the missing link to some um, rehab programs? Possibly. I think that was a really cool discussion and, and a really key takeaway from the podcast so I hope you enjoyed this one I really did it was great to have Bram on some great topics covered in this one as well um, a little bit more information on a single topic like velocity based training so I hope you took plenty from it as always I'd really appreciate it if you give it a share give us a tag give Bram a tag and also let us know what you, you thought of it and some of what some of your t- takeaways as well and if you've not done so already Our reviews recently have dried up a little bit, so it'd be great to get a few more on there. So head over to iTunes, click the five stars and leave us a short review. The the best person you've heard on the podcast, maybe the best topics, um, just a couple of lines on that. That would be amazing. You can also do the same on Spotify now without the actual written review. Just click the five stars. I really would appreciate it. But again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. We are 186 episodes in, which is crazy. I appreciate everyone's support and I'll speak to you again next week for episode 187.